look at some of what we just sang today. Uh, but good morning to everybody. First of all, happy Father's Day. Uh, as Debbie pointed out, uh, we do this every Mother's and Father's Day at Wayside, but uh, we certainly appreciate those who, who have actual, you know, physical sons and daughters that you're raising. Um, but we also acknowledge that according to the theology of the Bible, we are a church family, and that means that uh, every single one of the uh, men in our church are really spiritual fathers and big brothers, uh, depending on your age, to um, the next generation of, of, of young people that, that we're raising to love and serve Jesus. So uh, thank you to all the, the dads that, that have a kid at home or kids at home uh, for all the sacrifices you make. And then also thank you to uh, all you other men who uh, our kids look up to and, and who have an influence on their, on their lives and their walk with Christ. So happy Father's Day. Uh, we are continuing in a series in Hebrews. Uh, for those of y'all that are jumping on, I didn't check to see if we have any guests, but uh, if, if you're jumping on for the first time, we're about midway, a little past through uh, the letter to the Hebrews. And uh, so today we're going to be in Hebrews 9, as Kevin pointed out. Uh, go ahead and grab a Bible, put it in your lap, or grab your phone if you use a Bible app. And uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. 9, 1 through 14 pretty much the first half of chapter 9. And uh, just just by way of providing some context uh, that's going to connect in with what we talk about today, uh, a couple weeks ago we looked at Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5, and I don't expect you to immediately know what that says, uh, but in it, it was one of the descriptions of the Levitical priesthood, the, the priesthood under the old Mosaic covenant that was descended from Levi and the sons of Aaron. And the author to the Hebrews writes in, uh, in, in chapter 8, verse 5, and really describes this Levitical priesthood under that old covenant. And I really like how the, uh, the Net Bible translation translates that verse. I don't know if that's the one that's going to come up on your screen, but the Net Bible translated, translates it as the place where they serve, talking about the Levitical priests, is a sketch and a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. So he's talking about the earthly tabernacle. The earthly sanctuary is a sketch and a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. And then the author repeats this description of the tabernacle uh, later on in chapter 9, verse 23, which Chris is going to preach on next week. And this is what he writes in uh, Hebrews 9:23. So it was necessary for the sketches of the things in heaven to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves required better sacrifices than these. And that's what Chris is going to talk about next time is the sacrifices that were required. But that Greek term that shows up in both of those uh, verses that gets translated as sketch or in a lot of other modern English translations, it gets um, translated as copy. Uh, it, it means an indication of something that appears at a subsequent time. Uh, so, so this sketch that the earthly tabernacle was is an indication of something that appears at a subsequent time, an outline, a sketch, or a symbol. And today's passage is going to help us understand how that earthly tabernacle, that tent of meeting that, was, uh, that God instructed Moses to create, to build, we're going to see how that was a preliminary sketch of the good things that God had in store for his people 
in Christ, in Messiah, the Anointed One. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Um, as I was getting ready for this, I kind of went down a rabbit trail on this idea of sketch, and I uh, I was I was reading an article on a, a website called Artnet News, Artnet News, news.artnet.com or whatever. Anyway, it's it's a place for you know. Uh, art people. Uh, I can't say that I am. I tried to impress Stacy on our first date by taking her to an art museum. And uh, it was so funny because uh, there was this famous painting that was coming. There was the Kimball up in Fort Worth. And this famous painting was uh, going to be there called uh, A Huguenot. And I had read like, you know, on the website about it. So I'm like trying to look like I know what I'm talking about. And and at one point we're standing there looking at the painting and she's like, did, did you read the the caption on the website because <laughs> she had read it too so she knew exactly what I was saying so I was like yeah okay uh if you're gonna if you're gonna keep dating me you got to know that I'm not an art guy so anyway for for whatever reason I found myself on news.artnet.com this week and I was reading this article that got published last year during COVID and I want to read you the opening lines of it as we get the sermon uh started here uh the author writes this. uh, She says, a new high-tech study of Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa suggests that the Renaissance master created the painting using a previously unknown preparatory sketch. The faint traces of a charcoal underdrawing visible thanks to multispectral analysis, whatever that is, are evidence of the spolvero technique in which the artist pricks tiny holes along the outlines of the drawing and uses charcoal dust to transfer the cartoon to the canvas. So basically, long story short, a scientist, I think his name was Pascal Coty, uh, scanned, built this incredible uh, scanning technology and scanned the Mona Lisa back in uh, 2004 and he got like 1,700 high-resolution scans of this thing, okay? Uh, and then he spent the next 15 years, up until I think 2019, analyzing all of these high-resolution scans. So like, if you thought your job was boring and tedious, then think again, okay? This guy spent 15 years just looking at these, at these scans. And then... As it turned out, and this is the report that came out that he, you know, shared with the world, uh, he detected a preliminary sketch of Mona Lisa underneath the actual painting with these charcoal uh, sketchings. And so I I think this illustration is helpful in understanding the role of the old covenant, the old Mosaic covenant that was associated with the law of Moses, the Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial system where animals were sacrificed, And then the tabernacle itself, the actual tent of meeting, uh, which later was replaced by the temple. So as as modern readers, and I'm sure you guys can appreciate this. I mean, I'm being honest here, but you would say it as well. As modern readers, we we really can have a hard time understanding and appreciating the significance of these Old Testament realities, these these ancient Israelite realities from, you know, 3,500 years ago. But If we miss the point of these Old Testament realities, like the tabernacle, for instance, which is what we're going to be talking about today, 
then we won't be able to fully appreciate the beauty of God's redemptive plan throughout the ages. Let me, let me just say that again. This is, this is the problem with, with our fallen condition and our, our, our not being able to apprehend these things is that we're, we're, we're going to miss out on the beauty of, of what God has been telling us about his plan to redeem his fallen creatures, humanity, and reconcile us back to himself. If we miss all those Old Testament realities, which have pointed forward to and foreshadowed and led up to the reality of Christ, then we're going to not appreciate as much God's plan that he's been revealing to all of us through the ages. The tabernacle, which we're talking about today, was only a preparatory sketch of God's future masterpiece, which was ultimately the finished work of Christ for our redemption. That was God's masterpiece, but but the tabernacle as a preliminary sketch pointed forward to that. And that's what we're going to look at today. So for the purposes of today's sermon, we're going to look at our passage in basically two parts. First, we're going to look at the preliminary sketch in verses 1 through 10. And then we're going to turn to the finished masterpiece in verses 11 through 14. So in verses 1 through 10, we see the, the preliminary sketch, which was the tabernacle. Um, this earthly sanctuary that was at the center of Israel's religious life. It was the very presence of uh, the holy living God in the midst of an unholy people. Okay, uh, That was the tabernacle. All right. So in verses uh, 1 through 5 in our passage, the first thing that we see is a sketch of our access to God. And here in these first five verses... The author provides a really a detailed description of the tabernacle's architecture and furnishings. Uh, and and the, the, the author to the Hebrews obviously knew the book of Exodus frontwards and backwards because um, this is where he's deriving a lot of, a lot of this information is from Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers uh, back in the first part of the Bible. So let me read you these first five verses. So the author writes, Now, even the first covenant referring to that old Mosaic covenant. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. Talking about the tabernacle. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. There was a a lampstand in there that was lit. There was a table where they put, called the the bread of presentation. It's, It's this... Uh, these loaves of bread that they would replace each week and put on this table. And, and he writes, this is called the holy place. This is the outer tent. And then in verse 3, behind the second veil, so within that outer tent, there was a, a smaller tent. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense that was associated with it, uh, and the Ark of the Covenant which was covered on all sides, inside and outside, with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna. Uh, Kids, if you all remember the manna, that's what God provided for Israel in the wilderness. So they took some of that and put it in a jar. Uh, And it also had Aaron's rod, which budded, which that's a story uh, in the Old Testament. And then it had the tables of the covenant, those those, uh, stone uh, tablets that had the, the commandments written on them from God. 
And then in verse 5, it says, And above it, so hovering over this Ark of the Covenant, were the cherubim of glory. Those are angels, angel, angelic creatures with wings. It says, The cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Now, I would love, and you guys know me well enough by now, to know that I would love to nerd out on like, all the significance of all the various items and the details that we just went over in this description. But, you know, as the author puts it, of these things we cannot now speak in detail, I feel the same pressure. So if you want to nerd out on those, we can go grab coffee sometime. But the main thing to walk away with from this description is that the tabernacle is revealed uh, as a, as a two-staged approach to the presence of God. First, you had the, the holy place that only the, the, the um, Aaronic priests could go into. So first you had the holy place, that outer tent. And then the second stage of approach to God's presence was the holy of holies, the inner tent. In other words, this sketch reveals that access to God was restricted. And the reason for this restricted access to God was human sin. So in verses 6 through 10 we see a sketch of our atonement for sin, which was the problem that was causing the restricted access to God. And, and I use the word atonement because um, we're going to be, in the context of this passage, we're going to be talking about the Day of Atonement. But atonement is a, is, a, is a biblical word that is closely tied to the concepts of reconciliation, of relationship, and forgiveness. Okay, so it's kind of in that... Uh, nexus of words that describe th- what the gospel does for us in Christ, all right? So atonement is, is really a relational concept that presupposes a separation between God and man, that there is a restriction on man's access to God. And we saw that going all the way back to the Garden of Eden in, in the third chapter of Genesis, that when man disobeyed, turned away from God, uh, access was revoked, that these unholy creatures could no longer be in the presence of their holy God. So atonement really presupposes that there's a brokenness in our relationship with our Creator, okay? And that's what we see in our passage. Look at uh, verse 6. It says, Now, when these things, talking about the tabernacle and all the items and everything, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship, all these things that they did, putting the bread out, lighting, you know, making sure the the, um, lampstand stays lit, making sure that there's incense burning in the incense altar, and and et cetera, et cetera, uh, applying the sacrifices, okay? So the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, that first tent, performing the divine worship. But into the second, that inner tent, Only the high priest enters once a year. Now, this is talking about the Day of Atonement. Only the high priest enters once a year, and it says, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. And then look at this in verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, is showing us this, that the way into the holy place has yet has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. And folks, just so you know, depending on your translation, that word for outer right there, it it can also be translated as first. And that's how I tend to take it. 
that, that the way into the holy place, into God's presence, has not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle is still standing. The old tent is still standing, which is a symbol, the author says, for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings. These are all the regulations for divine worship that were associated with the the tabernacle and Israel's worship. Uh, Regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation or until a new order, okay? Um, so in verses 6 and 7, we see this, this um, pretty succinct description of the Day of Atonement. The one day when only one person, the high priest, could enter into the, the inner tent, the Holy of Holies, but only by bringing the blood of a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice in, in their case, to atone for human sin. And then in verse 8, we are told explicitly that the Holy Spirit wants us to learn a really important principle from this Day of Atonement. By the way, all the feasts of ancient Israel, all the feasts and festivals, teach us something about God and our relationship with God and God's plan. And so the Holy Spirit is telling us that there's an important principle from this Day of Atonement and from the architecture of the the tabernacle, the way God told Moses to construct this tent of meeting. The earthly sanctuary, which is literally, like I said, the first tabernacle in verse 9, okay, with all of its intricate regulations for divine worship and approach and all these things, that is only a preliminary sketch that points forward to a future reality. The, the, the preliminary sketch itself, the earthly tabernacle with its regulations for worship, could not provide the unrestricted access to God that we crave as his people, as his creatures, okay? It could not provide the unrestricted access because those animal sacrifices couldn't truly cleanse our conscience from the stain of sin. And so the restricted access remained during that time. But then in verse 10, the author is already referencing a time of reformation, or in some translations, it's translated a new order. In other words, those old covenant sketches were not the finished work. Um, I mentioned the discovery of a preliminary sketch under the famous Mona Lisa painting. And actually, it's always been common since artists began painting, it's been common to make a preliminary sketch and then paint over that sketch. Uh, The whole point of the sketch is that it's going to get covered up by the paint. In other words, it was never meant to be the final finished product in and of itself. So now in the 21st century with this super high resolution scanning capability that we have, we can actually go back underneath the painting and see that preliminary sketch underneath the final product. And this technique actually has been used to validate the authenticity of certain paintings because it can identify certain techniques of certain painters that were used in the preliminary sketching process. Isn't that interesting? So, so the fact that we can now look underneath the paint helps us validate or authenticate that a painting is really painted by a certain painter, which is sometimes hard to substantiate. 
In fact, back in 1991, and at the time I was like 10 years old, so I didn't care much about this. So I just found out about it this past week. But uh, back in 1991, uh, infrared photography was used to identify a sketch that was underneath the paint of a painting called Madonna of the Pinks. And I think maybe we've got a slide that I can show you of this, uh, this underdrawing underneath the Madonna of the Pinks. That's it. So that's from the infrared photography that showed some of the underdrawing, some of the sketching underneath it. And that actually helped to prove they thought that was just some copy. And so that actually, in, in 1991, it proved was used to prove or authenticate that that was actually an original painting by Raphael, the famous painter, right? Not the Ninja Turtle, if you kids are, are chiming in, uh, but it was actually this, this master painter, Raphael, and, and that, that sketching underneath it was used to authenticate it, which I think is pretty cool. And I also think this is a really good illustration of why we can't afford to be New Testament-only Christians, now, I don't mind if, you know, in order to keep it in your pocket, you have a New Testament-only Bible with some Psalms in there. That's fine. But in terms of, of, of our understanding and appreciation of Scripture, we can't afford just to look at the New Testament only. You know, in the art world, by viewing a preliminary sketch, we can better appreciate a painting and we can authenticate the painter by seeing what he's doing and recognizing that it's that particular painter that's doing it. And I think similarly, by, by analyzing the Old Covenant that we have in the Old Testament, the Old Mosaic Covenant, with the Law of Moses and the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system and the tabernacle, we can better appreciate God's redemptive plan throughout the ages. And, and furthermore, our understanding of that Old Covenant also, for us and for others that we can show it to, it authenticates the person and work of Christ as we see how Christ fits in and fulfills God's plan. That's one of the beauties of knowing the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and knowing what the Hebrew prophets foretold and, and knowing what was written in the Law of Moses and, and understanding the history of Israel and, and reading the wisdom literature and the poetry is that it all points to the Messiah, to the Anointed One, to Christ. And so it helps authenticate that. It helps uh, show people that, that, that the, the Old and the New Testament actually fit together. And the, the New fulfills the promises made in the Old. So my application uh, is, is simply to encourage all of us to rediscover the beauty and the significance of the Old Testament. Yes, even those long sections with specifications for exactly how to construct the tabernacle and how to prepare the priestly garments and, and all these things that we read. You know, if you're doing your read through the Bible and you're starting in Genesis 1, it's like all those sections you get to in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and you start to slow down a little bit. I, I want to reawaken in us an appreciation for those sections because they are so rich with the beauty of of with a preliminary sketch, I should say, of the beauty of God's finished masterpiece in Christ. Um, Paul expresses a similar sentiment in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Listen to what Paul writes towards the end of Romans. He says, and he's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the Hebrew Scriptures. He says, For whatever was written in earlier times, and yes, that includes the specifications for the construction of the tabernacle, 
It was written for our instruction. He's writing this to, to, to New Testament believers, to, to the church. It was written for our instruction. And listen to the, the purpose here. So that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. From this side of the cross, folks, we can look back and we can see how the Old Covenant points to and demonstrates the authenticity of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And speaking of that, uh, let's go ahead and turn to the last half of our verse where the preliminary sketch gives way to the finished product itself. So in verses 11 through 14, we see the finished masterpiece the finished work of Christ. And in the original Greek, uh, the author uh, fronts the name, the title Christ, because that is a title. It's not Jesus's last name, okay? Uh, The title Christ, which means the anointed one or God's anointed. uh, It's the the term for Messiah. So in the original Greek sentence, that gets at at the front of the sentence and it's emphasizing that title by placing it there. And this is a major hinge in the author's argument. So this is a major um, shift away from what the author had been talking about to what he really wants to talk about, which is Christ and his finished work. So starting in verse 11, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, That is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those, that was an ancient Israelite purification practice, Uh, The ashes of heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. So in other words, if those uh, animal sacrifices and those uh, ancient Israelite practices, according to the law of Moses, if those give you like a ritual cleansing where you're clean ritualistically speaking, that's one thing, okay? But he says in verse 14, and this is a lesser to greater argument, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish as a perfect sacrifice, sinless sacrifice to God, how much more will he then cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That is a beautiful passage. So in verses 11 and 12, we see our final sanctuary. Uh, There is some scholarly debate about exactly what's being referred to by the phrase the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Uh, some thinks there's at least a, a kind of a double reference to the, the, the body of Christ uh, since he's referred to himself at different times as the true temple, the true sanctuary, the, the presence of God among his people, etc. But I think the, the most likely interpretation seems to be that the author is referencing the heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly tabernacle, which is itself the very presence of God in heaven. That Jesus goes through that heavenly tabernacle into the very presence of God in the heavenly places. Okay, 
And then in verse 12 through 14, the latter half of verse 12 through the end of our passage, we see our finished sacrifice. And, and I say our finished sacrifice because Jesus sacrificed himself on our behalf so that we could obtain eternal redemption. And, and that is everlasting freedom from sin and the effects of sin and the judgment of God. What caused that restricted access between us and God? And this is emphasized by the fact that Christ entered the holy place once for all. He, he entered into, by his blood, the presence of God in heaven once and for all. And that's a theme throughout Hebrews. It's beautiful. And in doing so, he, he purchased us. Redemption also has this idea to it of paying a price and, and purchasing someone, like purchasing someone out of slavery, for instance. And so... When he did this, when he went by his blood through his sacrificial death on our behalf, when he went into God's presence, he purchased us out of sin and death by offering himself as as the perfect sinless life in exchange for ours. And when we trust in Jesus Christ, the guilt and the shame and the stain of our sin is removed from our conscience once and for all. Our, our works are dead in the sense that they cannot give us life. If anything, they just condemn us, okay? But they certainly can't give us eternal life. They can't redeem us out of our sin and death. And this is something only Jesus can do for us, okay? In terms of providing a solution for sin, there was nothing else to be done at this point. So the, the master painter, Jesus Christ, He puts down his brush, so to speak, and he takes his seat at the right hand of his heavenly father. There's nothing else to be done. There's nothing else to be added to our our eternal redemption, his finished masterpiece. Um, Earlier, I mentioned uh, that Raphael painting that had been authenticated back in 1991 based on the infrared imaging of this, this sketch that was underneath the painting. And, uh, and once they identified it as, as a genuine work by uh, the painter Raphael, it sold for $41.5 million to London's National Gallery. And don't you know that when the gallery received that painting after paying $41.5 million for it, don't you know that they didn't immediately soak it in paint thinner to retrieve that underlying preliminary sketch that was beneath the paint, right? Of course they didn't do that. The the preliminary sketch that they had seen through the infrared imaging, that was just a step in the process of painting that masterpiece. But it is the finished work itself that is so valuable, which is why they paid 40, they didn't pay $41.5 million for the preliminary sketch. It's the finished work that hangs on the wall of the National Gallery in London for for everyone to enjoy. And the finished work of Christ is no different. Even if we could, we should never want to go back to the old covenant, which was only, as I've said over and over again, it was only the preliminary sketch of God's redemptive plan. It wasn't the fulfillment. The Hebrew prophets and and Moses himself, they always looked forward to a a fulfillment, a a time of reformation, a new order, a new covenant, as we saw last week. As Christians, we can enjoy the masterpiece of Christ 
his once and for all sacrifice for sin, which cleanses our conscience and redeems us from sin eternally. And this brings up one final question. How are we to enjoy this finished masterpiece? Well, thankfully, the author of Hebrews doesn't leave this to our imagination. He tells us exactly what our worshipful response should be to the grace and mercy of our living God, he calls him. His redemptive plan is to cleanse our conscience from dead works. Why? At the very end of verse 14, so that we can serve him. Why did he bring Israel out of bondage and slavery in Egypt? So that his people, Israel, could worship him, could serve him. And and the finished work of Christ, it it doesn't hang lifelessly on the gallery walls of our minds. It should fill up our hearts and fill up our souls in a way that spills out into our lives, into the lives of others around us in the world. Our our worshipful response should lead us, folks, to Christian service, uniquely Christian service. That word for serve in verse 14 is the same exact word that's used for priestly service back in chapter 8. And there's variations of that word all throughout Hebrews that get used for this idea of priestly service. We have a priestly ministry. All of a sudden, the author goes from talking about priestly service under the old covenant in the old tabernacle. He goes from that to telling us that we as Christians are called to priestly service in Christ. And just like Christ, our offering in that service is one of self-sacrifice. Sacrificing our lives for the good of others and for the glory of God. And we're going to see more of this priesthood of believers in later chapters of Hebrews, especially when we get to Hebrews 13. But just consider what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes this. He says, after just spelling out the beauty of God's redemptive plan in the first 11 chapters, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. And listen to how he says this. He urges them because of God's mercy, to present your bodies, your lives, as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So let me close just by asking you, a question. Have you ever wondered why there are no detailed physical descriptions of Jesus in the New Testament? Have you ever wondered that? Why it doesn't say whether he was tall or short or uh, handsome by the standards of the day or brown or hazel eyes or bearded or not? The reason scripture is silent on these matters is because ultimately they don't matter. What does matter is the reality, not not what Christ looked like physically, but of who Christ is and what he accomplished on our behalf. That's what matters. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, they provide an incredibly intricate and, and really beautiful preliminary sketch of the person and work of Christ But the finished work itself, the masterpiece of God's redemptive plan in Christ, has covered over that old covenant. 
that preliminary sketch. And in doing so, it has ushered in a new way of relating to God under the new covenant that Jeremiah foretold. Not through the priestly service of others and their animal sacrifices and all the regulations of divine worship in a physical tabernacle or temple, but by by us becoming priests ourselves in service to God and Christ. Next week, Chris is going to talk more about this incredible price that Jesus paid for our eternal redemption as he closes out chapter 9 for us. So I look forward to uh, hearing his sermon.